0: And Esther, chapter 2, verse 19. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credi- credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on the gallows. All this was recorded in the Book of Annals in the presence of the king. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it, to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the poor, that, that is the lot, in the presence of a man to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered amongst the peoples in all the provinces of a kingdom whose customs are different from those of the other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put ten thousand talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to her man, and deal with the people as you please. Then, on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned they wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each of people of Haman's, sorry, all Haman's orders to the king satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the thirteenth month, the 13th day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province, and made known to the people of every nationality, so that they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered.
1: When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, Many lay in sackcloth sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain it to her and he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has only, but has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the golden scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law." And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is God's word.
2: Do keep Esther 3 and 4 open. And let's pray as uh, we hear this part of the story together. God our Father, please help me so to open the story uh, that your Spirit will take it home to our hearts and that we would understand and respond as we ought to today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well friends, if you are a Christian, there are people out to kill you. That's the first of the two things I want us to learn this morning. You'll see on the outline at the back of the service sheet. And uh, when I put it starkly like that, you will be thinking to yourself, I'll come off it. It's a sunny day in spring in the middle of civilised London. Are you just trying to scare me? Are you just saying something completely absurd. Is it a gimmick to get my attention? If you're a Christian, there are people out to kill you. But I believe it's true. And actually, there are are two things I want us to, to, to get from this part of the story, and that is the first one. This is the second of four episodes into which we've divided the Bible book, the Old Testament book, of Esther. And the book of Esther is set about 600 years before Jesus Christ in the Persian Empire, vast empire. And all the Jews, just about, nearly all of them, lived in that empire, scattered around that empire. In episode one, this is the sort of previously in the book of Esther, last week in chapters one and two, the key things that happened were The queen was sacked by King Xerxes because she didn't do what he wanted. And a a pretty young Jewish girl called Esther is made queen and crowned queen of Persia. That's the main thing that happens. There's something else that happens that's important we'll see in a moment, but that's the main thing. But just glance back, if you will, at chapter 2 and verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10 Esther, uh, when she's taken into the king's harem, had not revealed her nationality and family background. That is, that she's Jewish, because Mordecai, who is her cousin and her guardian, had forbidden her to do so. Then look on to verse 20. After Esther is made queen, she's kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. And so in chapters 1 and 2 last week, which was really we laughed quite a lot last week, we're not going to laugh this week, God willing we'll laugh next week, but this week is a darker part of the story But even in that really quite funny part of the story, chapters one and two, we have these two little dark hints that there's something about being one of God's people which is a little bit scary. And so Esther keeps quiet about it. We don't know whether she was right or wrong to keep quiet about it, but there's something going on in the empire that that means it's dangerous to belong to God. And in chapter three, What that is breaks out, and we'll see it very, very dramatically. And the first thing I want us to see as we go through chapter 3 is uh, a picture of the hatred that there is against the people of God. So verse 1, after these events, and these events is the account at the end of chapter 2 of an assassination plot against King Xerxes which Mordecai, the Jew, Esther's guardian, has heard about and basically he has saved the king's life. And that was maybe four or five years before. We don't know exactly when it was, but some while before. And the next thing that we hear in verse 1 is that King Xerxes honored not Mordecai, who saved his life, but a man called Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him, giving him a seat of honor. And he basically makes him grand vizier or prime minister or head of government, something like that. And verse 2, all the royal officials knelt down, they paid honor to him because the king commanded that. You've got to pay respect. They're not commanded to worship him. It's like taking a hat off or standing up when he comes into the room. You have to bow down, you have to, 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 to respect him as the head of government. That's what the king says. But, verse 2, Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. We don't know whether Mordecai was being a little bit obstinate or whether he's being very principled. That doesn't matter. The point is he won't. And the question is, why won't he? And so the royal officials At the king's gate, that is in in Whitehall, as we would put it, or in Washington, D.C., the the royal officials, Mordecai's fellow civil servants, verse 3, they say, Why? Why do you disobey the king's command? Why don't you stand up when Haman comes into the room? Why don't you show him respect? Day after day, verse 4, they they speak to him, and he refused to comply. He says, No, I'm not going to do it. I hate that man. And they tell Haman about it eventually, because Haman's been walking around with his head in the air and he hasn't noticed um, that that, that this man isn't paying him respect. So they tell Haman to see whether it'll be tolerated, because, verse 4, Mordecai has told them that he's a Jew. So it's something to do with being a Jew, and it's something to do with who Haman is. And the first thing I want us to notice is that, is that what's going on here is much bigger than an office, a petty little office spat. Much deeper. And that the hatred that, that we're going to see is an ancient and enduring hatred. And, and there are various clues in the, in, the, in, in the text. Haman is described in verse um, 1 as the Agagite. Scroll back. A number of centuries, Agag was the king of a people called the Amalekites at the time of King Saul, the first Israelite king. And Agag was the king of the Amalekites, and he had a thing with with Saul, which Saul didn't resolve very well. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 15. Scroll back a few centuries before that, to the time of the Exodus, in Exodus 17. And you'll see that the Amalekites tried to exterminate the people of God as they came out of Egypt and they were traveling through the wilderness. So right back, centuries before, the Amalekites tried to exterminate the people of God. Then you go through to the time of Saul, about 1000 BC, and you find Agag, the king of the Amalekites, fighting against the people of God. Then you scroll right the way forward to around 600 BC and you find this man, Haman, who is described as the Agagite. That may mean he's physically descended from the Amalekites or it may be a a term just saying that's the kind of person he is. He's somebody who hates the people of God. Just glance back at chapter 2 verse 5. And you'll see that when Mordecai was introduced in chapter 2, verse 5, Mordecai is given, we're told that he's a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, which was the tribe of King Saul, and that one of his ancestors, verse 5, was called Kish. And Saul's father was called Kish. Whether this was the same Kish or whether there was another Kish in his ancestry isn't the point. The point is that when you think Mordecai, you think somebody who's associated with King Saul who fought against Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And the point about all this background is that what's going on here is an enduring hatred and an ancient hatred. It's a very, very old hatred. It's a hatred that's been going on a very, very long time. The Amalekites tried to wipe out the people of God. Agag, the king of Amalek, tried to wipe out the people of God. And now Haman, the Agagite, is going to try and wipe out the people of God. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is not fundamentally about anti-Semitism. This is really important. Anti-Semitism is wrong and ugly. Just as hating any human being because of their ethnicity is wrong. Racism is wrong. That kind of thing is all wrong and evil and ugly. But the book of Esther is about something deeper than that. It's about hatred of God and the people of God. And the New Testament says that when you read in this story of Esther about Jews, you're not reading about people who today would be defined by ethnicity, You're reading about people who are the covenant people of God. And the New Testament makes it very clear that to be a Jew, in Bible terms, spiritually, is not an ethnic description. It's a description of of a man or woman who trusts in Christ, the Jewish Messiah. And the New Testament makes that really clear. If you want one reference, Romans 2, verse 28... And 29 says that somebody is not a Jew if they're one outwardly, but as somebody's a Jew if they're one inwardly uh, in the heart by the Spirit. So to be a Jew in, in this terms means to be a man or woman in covenant with God. And this hatred, this ancient hatred that we read about in chapter, one, chapter 3 of Esther, is the hatred... That is there in the world against the people who are in covenant with God. And it's very, very old. And it goes right back really to the beginning of time. But notice, second, as we go on in the story in verses five and six, that it's also a murderous hatred. So, verse five, Haman sees that Mordecai doesn't kneel down or pay him honor. And he's very angry because Haman has a, a fragile ego. But, verse 6, having learned who Mordecai's people were, that they're Jews, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes, which is pretty much the world. Now, you say, if you have a little office spat, you know, just supposing, you know, I'm Caucasian. Just supposing, you, you know, you, I irritate you in the office and perhaps you're Asian or something like that or African-American or something. And you, and you say, well, I'm not, I'm not content just with killing Christopher. I want to kill all the Caucasians in the world. You, know, you think there's a certain sort of over-the-topness about that, isn't there? But what, what's going on with Haman? And it is over the top. But it's a sign that the hatred that's coming to the surface here is something very deep and murderous. And it's, there's something very big happening here, bigger than just a little office spat in the Persian civil service. So verse 7, we see that it's also a godless kind of hatred. So we're now in the 12th year of King Xerxes. The story began in the third year. So nine years have passed. Lots of stuff's happened that we haven't heard about. But we're now, now in the 12th year of King Xerxes, and it's, it's the first month. And they cast the poor, that is the lot, or they roll dice in the presence of Haman, to select a day and month. Haman is superstitious. He says, I want diviners to come and roll dice to find a propitious day to kill all of the Jews in the empire. So he's superstitious. He believes that there is some kind of, there are gods and goddesses or spiritual powers in the universe, but he doesn't quite know who they are. And he says, if I roll dice, I might find a good day. There's something essentially godless about it. But in the providence of God, the lot falls on the 12th month. So there's going to be pretty much a year between these events and the destruction of the Jews. Notice next, as well as being an ancient hatred and a murderous hatred and a godless hatred, notice next in verses 8 to 11 that it's a lying hatred. Look how Haman deceives the king. So he comes to King Xerxes and he says, there's a certain people, I'm not going to name them, because it's much easier to, to, to sign an edict to kill people if you don't know who they are, if they're faceless and nameless. There's a certain people. And they're dispersed and scattered among the peoples in the provinces of your kingdom. Well, that's true. And their customs are different from those of all other people. That's true. And they don't obey the king's laws. Really? One of them has just saved your life. But I'm not going to tell you that. They don't obey the king's laws. Ultimately, they obey God rather than you, but most of them are loyal subjects. People who plotted against you to assassinate you weren't Jews. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So I tell you what, your majesty, verse 9, why don't we issue a decree to destroy them? And I'll give you a whacking great bribe. 10,000 talents is huge, it's a humongous. I mean, Haman it seems to have been a bit like a sort of Russian billionaire, you know, that kind of, um, an, or, you know, that kind of thing, very, very rich man. So he says, I'll give you pots of money um, to do that, which proves uh, that, 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 that it's really a selfish and deceitful thing. So the king, who is pathetic and weak and never makes any decisions for himself, takes his signet ring from his finger, he gives it to Haman, Notice how he's described again, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. That defines his existence. And the king says, keep the money, which he doesn't really mean, but that's what you say when you're the king. It's like saying you can have half my kingdom. Keep the money and do with the people as you please. And then they write out this edict, and it's a dreadful edict. Just look at verse 13. To destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children. It is a dreadful, total hatred. Let's pause there for a moment. What's going on here? It's a horrifying chapter. And the edict goes out, and the the, the Persian horsemen take the edict out all over the empire, and it's a horrifying edict that in in nearly a year's time, there's going to be genocide. We're going to kill all the covenant people of God in the empire, which is pretty much all the covenant people of God in the world. So what's going on? And I think the key is to understand that this hatred goes right back in time. It's an old hatred, and it's murderous and deceitful. And in in John's Gospel in chapter 8, Jesus says that at the heart of hostility to God and to the people of God, there is one who was a murderer from the beginning and who is the liar and the father of lies. And that at the heart of all natural hostility to the people of God is hostility to God, and it's a deep thing. Why did the Amalekites try and wipe out the Israelites? Why did Agag, the king of Amalek, try and wipe out the Israelites? Why does Haman, the Agagite, try to wipe out the Israelites? Why did so many people hate Jesus Christ and kill him? And why does Jesus say to his followers in John 15 and 16, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first? And so what we need to learn is that although... Of course, not every non-Christian wants to kill you. That would be stupid. In the common grace of God, there are masses of our neighbours and friends and work colleagues who are well disposed towards Christians. I mean, even at the end of chapter 3 of Esther, you find the city of Susa is is dismayed by this. There are plenty of people who who are well disposed towards the people of God. So we're not being stupid about this, but what we're saying is that underneath the surface of the empire, of the world, there is a hostility to to God, which sometimes comes to the surface and erupts. The persecuted church in many parts of the world knows that very literally. Jesus Christ knew that very literally. And even if we don't in our lifetimes, and who knows whether we will or, or, or we won't, even if we don't in our lifetimes directly experience persecution that is trying to kill us, we will experience hatred. There will be times when this hostility to God bubbles to the surface. And we need to understand that, that if we're Christian people, we cannot go through life thinking it's all going everyone's going to like us all the time. Because if we do that, we're just being culpably naive. And if you're not a Christian, and you're thinking that maybe you'll put your trust in Christ, I really hope you will. But I hope you'll do that with your eyes open. I hope you'll do that not thinking, now everybody's going to think I'm wonderful. (laughs) But understanding that if I follow Jesus Christ and I'm part of the covenant people of God, there will be times when I'll be hated. So that's the first thing. Now here's the second, and this is Esther 4. In Esther 4, we see a remarkable change in Esther. In chapters 1 and 2, Esther has been a sweet, pretty, compliant, young Jewish girl, who is chosen to be queen of Persia because she is pretty and compliant. That's all we know about Esther, really, from chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 4, there's going to be a change in that young woman, a very remarkable change, and I want us to, to trace it through. So verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Mordecai discovers what's happened, this edict that's gone out to kill all the Jews, and he goes into mourning, verse 1. He can't go into the king's gate, he can't go into Whitehall, he can't go into the civil service area in mourning, so he stays outside. And all through the empire, verse 3, there is mourning and fasting, which I take it implies that there was prayer as well. Esther knows nothing about this, verses 4 and 5. Um, Esther's maids and the eunuchs um, attending her uh, in the palace tell her what's happened, that her, her guardian hasn't reported for duty, he's out in the public square, and he's in mourning. So she's very upset, and she says, well, what's going on? So the, the Hathak, her, one of her attendants, verse 6, goes out to Mordecai, and Mordecai tells him, verse 7, everything. Esther is in a cocooned in the palace with a widescreen TV and, well, probably not a TV really, but you know, she, she, she doesn't really know. I mean, what's another genocide in the Persian Empire? You know, what's, a, what's another bit of killing, you know, another edict in the Persian Empire? There she is in the palace, she's cocooned, and she's on her own. And Mordecai tells her assistant, Hathak, all that's happened, including the bribe, verse 7. And verse 8, he gives this attendant, a copy of the edict for the annihilation of the people of God. And he says, take it to Esther and urge her, verse 8, to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy. So he goes in, verse 9, and in verses 10 and 11, Esther says, sends a message back which basically says, you've got to be kidding You've got to be kidding. She says to Mordecai, everybody knows. She's usually very respectful of Mordecai, but she says in this case, you you know, you've got to be kidding. Everybody knows. You can't just walk into the presence of the Persian emperor. If you march into the inner court, unless by some miracle he extends the golden scepter to you and says it's okay. Otherwise you just get killed. That's the deal. And I haven't been called, she says, for 30 days. And as one commentator nicely comments, it's unlikely the king has been sleeping alone. So she says, I haven't been called for 30 days. I've got nothing. I've got no power. All I can offer is my body. And if he doesn't want my body and I haven't been called for 30 days, it's suicidal to march straight into the inner court and to plead with the king. I'll simply be executed. And Mordecai preaches the gospel to her. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, here is the gospel. And he says, Don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, nobody knows she's a Jew in the palace, at least the king doesn't. If you remain silent at this time, relief And deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. That's the gospel. Mordecai understands that if God makes a promise that he's going to save the world through a people, he's going to keep that promise. Somehow the Jews are going to be saved. Somehow the covenant people are going to be saved. Somehow the Messiah is going to come. Somehow God will keep his promise, he says. That's the gospel, verse 14. But you and your father's family will perish. You'll perish. If you don't, either you identify yourself with the people of God at this time, in which case you will be rescued, or you don't, in which case you think you're going to be safe. You think you're with the majority. You think you're with the culture and the world. And you think that's the easier way to live. But in the end, you're the one who's going to lose out. And then he says those famous words, verse 14, and who knows? but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Who knows? Who knows whether the fact that the previous queen got sacked nine years before didn't just happen? Who knows whether the beauty contest and you winning the beauty contest and you becoming queen, who knows? Who knows whether all that Strange train of events in chapters 1 and 2. Who knows whether all that stuff in your life hasn't brought you to this position for such a time as this. So here's the gospel, says Mordecai to Esther. You need to understand that the covenant God has made a covenant promise to his people. And you need to understand that now is the time when you stand publicly with his people. And you exercise Faith and you courageously identify yourself as one of the covenant people of God. Who knows? But you may not but, but that you've come to royal position for such a time as this. And wonderfully something changes in Esther, verse fifteen sixteen. Go, she says, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink three days, night or day, and I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And from that moment on, Esther changes. We'll see this again next week. There's a tremendous transformation in Esther from being a a sweet, pretty, pliable girl who may or may not have any faith in God. We have no idea at the beginning of the story whether she does or doesn't. But Mordecai preaches the gospel to her, and it seems that she believes it. And from this point on, Esther begins to take initiatives. Esther begins to hold herself with dignity. Esther acts with courage and wisdom because she believes that she has been brought to royal position for such a time as this. And she anticipates in some way a greater believer who was brought to a position for such a time as this, a position where he will face the ancient enemy the one whose will, murderous, deceitful will it is to to destroy all the people of God, where he will face him head to head at such a time as this. And whereas Esther can say, if I perish, I perish, and she didn't, this greater believer will perish. He will face the enemy head on, and he will perish at the cross of Jesus Christ. And Esther, in her courageous faith, anticipates in some measure the courageous faith of Jesus of Nazareth. But it doesn't stop there. And Esther, in her courageous faith, also anticipates the courageous faith that you and I, if we are followers of Jesus, are called upon to exercise. I wonder if we told our stories, whether a number of us here wouldn't say, I wish my family were different from what it is. I wish my circumstances were different. I wish I lived somewhere different. I wish I wasn't working for this particular boss or partnership or company. I wish some things were different for me. And it's as though this word that came first to Esther and is fulfilled in Jesus comes also to us. Who knows? Who knows? But the particular circumstances, all the things that seem to other people just to be flukes and chances, that have led you and led me to be where we are now, with our particular family, our particular people we live with, our particular neighborhood, our particular work colleagues, our particular circumstances. Who knows? But God may not have organized these things for us so that we are where we are, when we are, for such a time as this. And maybe even this week for some of us, the opportunity to speak courageously for Jesus Christ, to identify ourselves, to say, yes, I am one of, I do belong to Jesus, I am one of God's people, to take that risk and it may be that God in some smaller way has put us where he's put us for such a time as this. So this morning we've, we've, we've learned to be realistic about the hatred and the hostility. That there is a deep and ancient hostility to God and to all who will identify themselves with God's people. And we've got to be realistic about that. That is how it is. We've learnt the gospel that God will keep his promises. Relief and deliverance for the Jews will come. For all the people who belong to Christ, Jew and Gentile, who are in covenant with God through Christ, relief will come. Deliverance will come. Rescue will come. God will keep his promises. But we're left with that challenge. Will we walk in the footsteps of Esther? As supremely the Lord Jesus did and say, yes, I believe that God has ordained my particular circumstances with all their ambiguities, all the strange things have led me to be where I am and who I am at this time, that he has put me here now where I am, he's put you here now where you are, with the people you live with, the people you work with, for such a time as this. And will you and I walk in the footsteps of Jesus and in a way in the footsteps of Esther and say with Esther fast, pray pray for courage for me this week let's do that for one another and then I will stand by God's grace with the people of God that would be a wonderful thing As always, when a great story is broken into episodes, we do find ourselves stopping at a cliffhanging place. And I'm sorry about that. At the festival of Purim, the Jews read the entire scroll of Esther in one reading. And probably that would be a better thing to do, but we're just going to have to live with that. That is the end of episode two. Next week's episode really is a cliffhanger. An extraordinary episode as we tackle chapters 5, 6, and 7. Don't read ahead. <laughs> Wait till next week for that. Let's pray. God our Father, we thank you for warning us that there is hostility that there is a murderous enemy of all your people. Help us to be realistic and not to be naive. But thank you also for the gospel. Thank you for Esther and her courageous faith. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you took him to the cross for such a time as this. And in our little ways and our little circumstances, we pray that in our small ways, we too might be those who walk in Esther's footsteps. And we pray that you would give us that strong confidence with all the frustrations in our lives, the things that we wish were other than they are. We pray that you would give us the confidence that in your providence you too have brought us to where we are for such a time as this. Help us to trust you, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.